Welcome back to 10,000 No's, and uh, we are in the midst of what I will call election week. Not election day, because this has taken a while. By the time you hear this episode, we may know who our next president is going to be, but we may not. We may not know till Friday night. I don't know. Um, At this point, with everybody clinging to their TV sets, I felt that while we have some really great episodes in the can that will be coming to you soon, I thought that it would be appropriate to revisit an old episode that I had with uh, a public servant, a a politician, and I don't even like to use the word politician for this guy because politician has, um, there's a bit of a stigma attached to that word politician these days. And my guest today uh, is Marshall Tuck. And I sat down with him in 2018 as he was running to be California's next state superintendent of public instruction. Unfortunately, he lost that battle. Um, You'll hear him speak and know why I say unfortunately, because this is a guy, as the title suggests, that really has his heart in the right place. He is really about um, helping kids, helping the state, hardworking, honest, just just a, a, a decent man. And um, I thought that releasing this right now would just remind us of, of the highest ideals of politics when they mesh with a candidate's heart, their excellence of character, and his story, having lost that election, but he's still kicking. He is still out there serving. It reminds us that while we all here knows, when we are led by a higher purpose, we can weather any storm. So here is this old episode from 2018. Please forgive any references to dates or time if they're in there. And uh, enjoy not only the old opening that we no longer use, but... Enjoy Marshall Tuck. What we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Guys, this podcast is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us just think have it made is a way for the rest of us to realize we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, thank you. And please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Maddie Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, shout it from your rooftop, beat people up on the street and force them to listen, whatever. If you can leave an iTunes review, boom, I love it. Either way, I appreciate the support. I'm glad you're listening, even if this is your first one. And I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am. You know, politics, you go to one meeting, like, I'm behind you. You go to two others, like, hey, no. You know, and then you go to another one, like, you're a jerk. Yeah. And, and so. 
Welcome back to 10,000 No's. I am really excited today. We're getting real serious over here. We got a politician. My guest today is Marshall Tuck. Uh, a few months ago, I was dragged basically to a political fundraiser. I am not what you would call a political animal. I did not go into the evening with high hopes. Certainly didn't think I was going to be inspired. Rather, I was kind of bracing myself for what I was going to have to tolerate. Then Marshall Tuck takes the mic, and it turns out he's running for state superintendent of public schools in California. And he proceeds to blow my mind with this off-the-cuff, extremely articulate, and most importantly, genuinely heartfelt conversation. Uh, it, it, I would say speech, but he really was listening as much as he was talking. Uh, he was talking about what he's accomplished here in California to improve our schools already, mostly in districts that are very high need, and why he's serving. And as a dad with two kids in California public schools, I just immediately love this guy. He's the, he's the kind of guy that I think should be in public office. He's there for the right reasons. He's honest, hardworking, sincere, passionate, and intelligent. I could go on, but I'm just going to let you hear for yourselves. Marshall Tuck, folks. So where are you? You're, are you from here? You went to UCLA? No, uh, California right? kid. So I'm from the Bay Area. Okay. Uh, was raised uh, on the peninsula. I was born in a town called Burlingame and then moved to Hillsboro. Went to San Mateo High School. Uh, lucky enough, I'm one of four kids and we're all one year apart. So literally... Where do uh, you fall? I'm the, I'm the youngest. Youngest. Yeah, but like, you know, classic Irish Catholic influence upbringing. My mom just... What, you know, she was basically pregnant for four years. Um, yeah. Good news is we just had tons of fun and love and joy in the household. You know, I'm very lucky that when you're one of four kids, there's always someone to play with. Um, wonderful parents. And my mom, who's just this incredible woman, dedicated. She was a teacher, but then she stopped working when she had her kids. And we, so we had all of her passion, intellect, heart, integrity, just literally focused entirely on raising us. So it was, a, it was a wonderful, you know, wonderful upbringing. I had K-5 Catholic school. And then we went to public school, middle and high school. Oh, all right. And did you, uh, were, like, were you the runt of the litter? Like, did you get beaten on by your You know, so it was a little, or, it was old school Irish Catholic. I mean, you know, where my, my grandma, um, my, my mom kind of just more raised that way. It wasn't like she's a first generation immigrant, but my grandma had come over and, and um, our house was, you know, we had boxing gloves when it, when it got a little testy, my mom said, take it outside and, and, and get after it. Um, yeah. until the good news is we were smart though, because as we started getting older, we kind of fought less because we realized it hurt a lot more. You yeah. know, when we were like five and six and seven and eight, we'd fight, but it, it didn't really hurt. And then all of a sudden my brother and I, uh, who's one year older, we got in a big fight and afterwards we both kind of looked at each other and said, didn't say it, but we both kind of knew that was aggressive. We're probably done, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, so it was, I was, I was the youngest, youngest. You're always, I talk too fast. I got to be reminded even to slow it down on conversation like this, partially as the youngest kid trying to get a, you know, get a word in at the table. Um, I also, we had a number of cousins and I was amongst our closest cousins, also the youngest there. And so, yeah. um, you know, run to the litter. I don't know the good definition, but certainly the guy who's trying to, get his voice heard and, and looking up to his older siblings and, and some of my older cousins. And, um, and was it just uh, one brother and then two sisters? No, two brothers. Or? So two brothers and a sister. And your sister's oldest. Oldest brother, oh, okay. then sister, then my other brother, then me. And then you. Yeah. Okay. And your and, mom was a uh, teacher yeah. elementary school? Mom or? was a teacher elementary school. My, my, my grandma was a teacher. My aunt was a teacher. My mom was a teacher. Uh, you know, my grandma, really, really strong woman was kind of like the the matriarch of our family. She was, you know, was in Butte, Montana, moved to Fresno, unfortunately, you know, got divorced. And this is a time back when, 
um, you know, very common today, but for a, a Catholic woman in yeah. the, you know, fifties get divorced was unheard of. So she, and she had basically nothing. So she, my mom and, and they actually lived on like the nunnery for a little while. Then my grandma went back to school and, and got her degree and taught while raising, uh, my mom and, and my two uncles, my aunt. Um, and so, so there was, but so she became a teacher. And then of course my mom and my aunt adored my mom. And so she was a teacher, you know, okay. uh, my dad's, my mom was also, uh, yeah. uh, she was a special ed teacher. Well, I think our generation, yeah. um, most, I, I, anybody who's around our generation, plus or minus 10 years, if you ask, did your mom work? And they said, yes, half were teachers because there was just such little opportunity. Um, you know, the, the society was really problematic back in those days in terms of what was possible for women. So it was, you know, teacher, nurse, or, or secretary were kind of the, yeah. the options as, as my mom tells it. Right. So, um, so that was wonderful. And then my dad was one of eight. So he had tons of, you know, he had a huge family wow. and, and there was, we always had tons of cousins around and it was just, uh, as I mentioned, no, I was very, I, I'm very grateful for my upbringing. Like it was just, I get along well with my brothers and my sister and, and got along well with my cousins. There was never a whole lot of, you know, some folks you hear those huge sibling rivalries and we just, that Didn't wasn't really it. part of our, our situation. I think a lot of that's because my mom just reinforced all the time, like take care of each other and, and have fun with each other. And we had tons of love, you know, from, from our parents. And, um, and my parents were also, my, was really strong about not, not overdoing, like, you got to be this person, that person. It was like, be a good person, work hard, take responsibility, you know, be kind to people, uh, deliver up whatever you say you're going to do, follow through on it, but wasn't aggressive on, oh, you got to go be an engineer or a lawyer. It gave us a lot of space to, to be who we were going to become. Yeah. Yeah. And, and did you have any inkling that time? Um, I mean, would you consider, I mean, you have to consider yourself being in education, but were you, were you ever a teacher in a school? Uh, I, I did one year of service work abroad where I taught in Zimbabwe and Thailand, and we can get to that in terms of how yeah, that happened, well, you know? Um, so I, I did a little bit of teaching, but when I was, you know, if we were having this interview when I was 16, you would not have heard that I was going to work in education for 15 years in Watts and East LA and South LA. What did you think at that point? You know, it was, I, I was pretty influenced by, um, religion. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a kind of all religion person. I think, you know, I was raised Catholic, but I think that the fundamental values of all religions are pretty consistent, you know, be a good human being. You're on this earth to be a part of a community and, and to help other people and to serve. And so, that was something that was ingrained in me, both, um, you know, church and, and, and also at home. And so the ideal, like, even when I was younger, the idea of, Hey, at some point in life, I want to help people have a better life was, was there. Cause you just hear this message over and over again. Now, you know, if, when I was 16 years old, was that the top priority in my life? You know, I'd be lying to you if I said it was right. It was, yeah. you know, having a, a good season in basketball and having friends and doing well in school, but it was always a priority. So I'd always envisioned a scenario where, um, at some point I'd actually land helping a lot of people. And I thought there'd be one of two paths at the time, which was, Hey, maybe it's, you know, go in and go be an attorney and then maybe go into politics and, and help people that way. Or it was, Hey, maybe go into business and make a lot of money. And then later in life with kind of money and influence drive change that way. And that was really, when I went to college, I went to UCLA for undergrad. Um, when I went to college, that was kind of my, my thinking. I was poli sci thinking, Hey, maybe I'll go law politics. And I started taking accounting and, and some econ as I thought about, you know what, I don't think I want to be in school much longer. I don't think that path makes sense. Maybe I'll go into, um, the private sector and, 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 you know, make a lot of money and then much later in life drive change. So I change driving change for people was in my heart and my mind. It was not necessarily top priority. And it was more, Hey, I'll do that later. You know, more of the traditional, I'll go on the traditional path of, Hey, go yeah. and go to school and be successful and get a good job and make some money and then give back later. Um, luckily for me that 
What uh, was it that was it Zimbabwe? That, yeah, that, you know, it was, I, I was I so I finished um, college in 1995, and as I mentioned at the time, I was like, okay, I'm a pretty analytical, straightforward thing. Okay, I'm going to go make a lot of money. So what do I do? I'm going to go into finance because I graduated college in 1995. And the fastest way to make a lot of money that was pretty straightforward was finance. Um, and so I went to work in investment banking and I'm sitting in, and I'm, you know, 22, 23 years old. I'm working 90 hours a week. And I, my mom was a big like work hard person. So there was no problem with the hours. Um, but I was totally unhappy and I didn't know exactly. I was just so focused on doing a good job I didn't, I didn't really realize as unhappy as I was. And then there'd be like little kind of little small things that kind of opened my eyes a little bit. Like one time I talked to a cousin I talked to for a long time and, you know, kind of like three or four weeks later, I was talking to my brother and he's like, Hey, you know, I, I talked to Matt recently. He said you were kind of negative and I'm a very optimistic, positive guy. I'm like, that's so unusual. He said, you weren't even that nice. You know, and I had another, you know, good friend of mine, like a long-term friend that I kind of got in a fight with and it would just... It just didn't make sense. I got in a car crash because I was just like so exhausted. It just, there's all these little things. And I'd, I'd had a very fortunate life, you know, and, and it was just these small things that just weren't adding up. And, and I'm going to work every day. I'm starting to mature a little more as a person in, in, like you start to do in your 20s, or at least for me, some people faster than that. But, and I just was going to work in a profession that was all about making money and getting the deal done. And as I was growing up, I'm like, I want to do stuff that's much more aligned with my heart and my values and so I, I, I luckily just um, said, I got to get off this track. I, I got to get on a different path. And I didn't know exactly what that path was because while my house was a very um, kind of kindness, hope, help others house, it wasn't some heavy political service, social justice household. Okay. So I kind of had to figure some of this stuff out um, on my own, but I had... Uh, were they involved in the community, your parents? Like, in we, a lot of, you know, they, church and volunteer work right. here there, but not, but not, not heavy. Okay. Like my house, Sorry, we talked about, no, we, I mean, our, we talked about like the San Francisco Giants and, and watching Cheers on Thursday night. Yeah. Like there was, it wasn't a heavy what's going on in Washington, D.C. or politically. And no, but it was always a heavy, hey, let's, you know, anything we have extra, let's give to the poor. So it was, it was a very, um, you know, serve, serve those that don't have a lot household, but not an active yeah. political or, or, or social justice household. But so I'm in this job. It's not making a lot of sense. I had all these little indicators that I wasn't happy. My heart was saying I wasn't happy. Um, my cousin Mitch, who's my same age, who's like a brother, uh, he went and did a year of service work in um, Johannesburg, you know, through the Jesuits priest actually, and, and was teaching. And, and, and I was really impressed by that. And, and I just, I just said, I got to get off the path I'm on and get on a different path. And so I decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and do a year of service work. And I'm going to take myself 100% out of my comfort zone and go from, uh, you know, investment banking finance to going to the, some of the highest poverty areas of the world and, and do service full time. And I'd always done some volunteer work throughout my life, but it was always like a hobby. And if nothing else was on the on my plate, right, it was never a top priority. And so I said, I want to go do service work full time. And I want to go and see how the majority of people in this world are living and people living in poverty. And so I finished, I committed to two years. I was a big, really raised on follow through on your commitments. So I finished my two year commitment and I went, it, you know, I finished uh, at Solomon Brothers in I think end of June or early July of 1997. And then I jumped on a plane a month later and did a year abroad, um, which was uh, three months in a tiny village called Chitora in Zimbabwe, four months in a tiny village called Topla in Thailand, and then a month, a little over a month in Romania. Um, and then in between, I did some travel. Um, and, you know, Chitoro really was a life-changing experience for me um, 
because it was such an inspiring experience and such a different experience from anything I'd ever done before. I mean, I, I lived in what a, was the main uh, what What was the main takeaway there? Did you find that people, despite having nothing, seemed happier than the? Well, no. I think my main takeaway was so so they were wonderful people. I mean, so Chitora was this little. So you're, you're in Zimbabwe, and then the 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 nearest city is Mutari, which is like the fourth largest city. And then you jump in a truck in the back of a truck, you know, you, and you you get you go down the road like forty kilometers, then you jump out of that and you hike like you know five kilometers to get to Chitora. I mean, it's this tiny little village, and and just wonderful people. And I live with uh, a grandma and her four kids because. Oftentimes what you, you find in Zimbabwe, particularly at that time, was, you know, the men would go to the city to try to make money. And then the grandparents and the kids and oftentimes the the women would be in the village. So um, I lived in this tiny little hut with Ambuya Shumba was the grandma and then Melody Gaylord Johnson and Munyaradzi. And I taught at the local high school. And I think the biggest thing, I mean, just just beautiful people. And it was it was such a wonderful experience for me. But I think the biggest game changer was I could see what Johnson, Munyaradzi, Gaylord, and Melody, what their lives could have been if they had been born here in this country, and particularly if they had been born in, in, you know, better circumstances here. And I knew them work, living in a dictator government, one generation out of apartheid, no real economic infrastructure, health care infrastructure, and, and the education had, had just started that— um, they 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 weren't going to fulfill their max like their maximum potential like they were certainly happy but you could just see um, what their opportunity could have been elsewhere and what it was going to be there and I just sat back and said this doesn't make any sense like why isn't it that every kid everywhere shouldn't have the opportunity to fall in love with learning you know like Melody loved I mean she loved learning and you could have seen her uh, here or in other parts of this world a path towards being a doctor, you know, a path towards being a professor. Like she just loved it. And in that country, which really has real big challenges, particularly at that point in terms of, um, you know, kind of chauvinism and there's not a lot of opportunity for women and, and, and not much there. Like you just, you knew that wasn't going to happen. And you could see, you know, Gaylor was like just the all around kid. You could see where he could have been just about anything. So just, so, so having that experience and then realizing that it just doesn't make any sense that they're not having a chance at a better life. And then the idea that I would just go back and, go back to work and not try to change that so that more people could have a different opportunity. It, it just like right there. I was like, for me, my life's going to be about helping as many people as possible have a better life rather than success being defined as, you know, making money and what, what typically oftentimes and too oftentimes in our society is like what's recognized as success, which is like, you know, big, big job, big money, yeah. big homes. And so that was just, it was, it was wonderful for me, you know, and, and certainly only reinforced, um, through the rest of my year. And I did, I taught similar experience in Thailand where I taught and lived with a family. And then Romania, I did some work with orphan kids. And um, it, it just was very, very motivating to me. I had, I, I'm so fortunate in my life. I'm a big believer that, you know, those that are really fortunate have a much greater responsibility to help other people. And, and um, so that was a big turning point. Didn't know exactly. How old were you? 24? I was 24. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 23. I think at that, at that, at that point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 20, I guess 24. Yeah. So, so, it was and, and maturing and growing up, and, I, and I'd been before that. I just been on a very defined path, you know, like in yeah. school, enjoy time with my friends, do very well at school, and then volunteer once in a while to kind of check off the box, right, of my yeah. of my kind of heart. And then I finished college. I was just nonstop work, and then all of a sudden I, I put myself totally in a different situation. Had a lot of time to reflect. Had just wonderful people to inspire me, and my eyes were opened uh, 
you, you know, there were differences in the world, but living them and seeing them and being in, in areas long enough where I got to build some real relationships um, was very, very motivating to me and very inspiring and something that I'll, I'll carry forever. And I always think I still stay in touch actually with Melody and her husband, Stanford, who, who was nice now. It was always letters before and now it's, you know, now we can actually we're, we send emails in there. But one of those experiences where like what I got out of it was just so much more. And I still try to help them once in a while and stay connected and, and help them financially here or there. But you know, I got so much more experience than than the the kids I was with. And the how family. are they doing now? And and how is their society? Now? It, I mean, unfortunately, is, is Zimbabwe still... got worse and worse after yeah. I left. You know, it was. Uh, I mean, luckily Mugabe finally stepped down. Uh, you know, the, the dictator who'd been there since I think '83. I mean, and when I was there in '97, in the early '90s, Zimbabwe could potentially be like the the glowing example of of Africa. It had some nice natural resources, and there was some progress there, but. Um, it was a perfect example of of just horrible leadership and really self centered leadership that that lasted for two decades from the time I went there. But it's it, at least there's a new new government and hopefully there'll be more opportunity for folks. Um, but still a lot of good energy and smiles smiles in our communications yeah. you know, back and forth. Yeah. So you come back, you have this moment. I mean, it's actually yeah. not unlike what I was telling you before we started up. With yours is I think uh, a. a more noble. I, I actually, you know, I'm just thinking of your trajectory. Not it's noble, kind of but like, you're when you're sitting noble, in Italy, but you're, you're, the you're, same you're thing. reflecting I out of my Absolutely. element, and yeah. I was no, the same noble thing. is the wrong word. We all got to figure out a path. It's, it's no, it's no more. It's it's not as noble. It's just it's no, it's but like, it's, it's you're, following you're, your heart. You're ball, Boston College, you're the big lacrosse player, and all of a sudden you're out abroad, and you're like, my heart's not in this. Where, yeah, where's, and where's, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I was on a, I was the same thing where I was on this trail. I was on this track that was familiar, and then had this call. That was oh tr- veer this way and um, similar thing where yeah. where I came back and and, and thought oh I'm going to go yeah, I'm just going to get right back in it and then said no I'm actually going to go try this and it's uh, you know it's it's an interesting path to take and yeah. it's and it's kind of it's amazing you get to experience all these things and you think about that that split so what did you do when you uh, you came back yeah how did you Put that into action. What'd you do? Yeah. So now, now I'm, I'm in, I'm in the case where I know where my heart is, but my mind has no idea what the next step is because it's just not the world I've been into. So I thought, okay, what's something I know that's familiar, but connects with, um, what I'm trying to get done. So I literally, while I was abroad, I wrote, uh, applications to business school of all places, but I actually said, I wanted to learn how to build entrepreneurial organizations that drive change in the social sector. So like business school is familiar to me because it's kind of like, Oh, that was, I never, I hadn't thought about public policy school before my trip abroad or, you know, so, uh, but I think my application was a little bit different that, that I kind of said in the application, Hey, success for me is that helping other people. And we have to figure out a way like these, we have solvable social issues that we haven't solved. So we have some different approaches. So I want to go and learn how to build entrepreneurial organizations and, and, and use those to drive change in the social sector. So which I is, up- which is really smart and, and great for everybody who's going to benefit from your help, because it, it seems like some, there's either like the touchy feely side or yeah. the business I mean, I, side. I, it seems like you melded we, the two. And especially entrepreneurism. I think, I yeah. think, you know, how do you, which I learned a little bit also after business school, but like, how do you, you know, build organizations and run them really efficiently? And to me, the efficiency is about impact as many people as possible. And so I ended up going to Harvard business school for two years. And, uh, most importantly, I met my wife there, which was the best. Love the overall academics was great, but the uh, the fact that my wife, who's incredible, who's literally the American dream, and my wife came to this country with 
absolutely nothing and went to Columbia undergrad and Harvard Business School. Wow. Uh, so you have to do from her where? Where'd she, where'd uh, she from Hong Kong. So very, you know, she, her family came over when she was five from Hong Kong. Her mom worked in a sweatshop. Her dad swept floors and, wow. and she, we've just found her next they, episode they, of yeah, 10,000 exactly. Knows. Yeah, exactly. Great. Like, immigrated <laughs> to Brooklyn and, and getting to, you know, we'll get to education, but, uh, she, her elementary school wasn't very strong. She lived in a pretty high poverty neighborhood and, um, but she tested in the magnet school. So she got into the, you know, New York system. You can test into better schools and especially back then. So she ended up getting on that path. So, yeah. uh, I, I meet her, which is awesome. Have a great experience in business school and still trying to figure out what's the, what's the path. You know, what's, I did a internship at a group called the upper Manhattan empowerment zone, which was about how do you kind of take finance skills, to, but use those to actually drive, um, and like nonprofit on actually how do you create uh, businesses in Harlem and things like that. Just trying to help support there. So is this like early internship? Early two thousand. Yeah. So I, I fin- I, yeah, this is an internship. So I finished Harvard two thousand, okay. and um, I ended up spending a little more time in the private sector. And it's this is one on reflection that, that I thought about. Okay, do I go full time nonprofit or for profit? And one, I was one hundred and fifty grand in debt, so I was a little nervous about the debt uh, because I did a year of service work plus two years in business school, and none yeah. of that's paid for. You know, but too, Matt, I think I was also still a little bit insecure of making that final jump into, you know, service work. I don't think I admitted that at the time. Yeah. At the time, I think I was like, oh, it's, I, I got to get under, finan- I got some financial control here. Yeah. Um, but I'm a pretty aggressive risk taker. So I don't think that alone would have, I, I think I was just a little bit nervous. So I went and spent two years working in technology, found the phenomenal entrepreneur, a guy named Zach Renat, who really valued, I, when I interviewed with him, I said, Zach, I'm not going to be here for a long time. I really want to go and, and drive change, but I feel like I have a little more to learn about actually, I, I just studied building organizations. I want to learn how to build one from someone who's done it before. Um, and he, he, I think the only reason I got the job was not because I was great for the job, but Zach really appreciated um, where I wanted to go longer term. And so I spent two years. And then after my first year, I started taking days off in my second year. And I started um, kind of digging into to, to network with people to understand what's my right point of entry. And I, I pretty quickly in 2000 and 2001 said, education is the place to focus uh, because I wanted to work domestically versus internationally. If I was going to do international work, I'm not so sure it would have been education because my North Star is how do I help as many people have a better life as possible? And I think, you know, if you're in Zimbabwe, step one was get a get a stable government in place and some sort of infrastructure. But uh, in America, I think the issue that can lead to the most happiness by people um, for people that can lead to the most equity that can lead to everybody having a real great shot at a future is, is our public schools. And, and the fact is that, um, in our country, and I saw this in 2000 and 2001 and ultimately motivated me to get an education full time. We literally have just millions and millions and millions of kids who are going to schools that are not preparing them at all for the future. And, 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 you know, we, I, I live in California and in our state, if you're born into poverty, the likelihood of going to a good school is extremely low. And in the 21st century, if you're not getting a good education, the idea that you can actually get a job um, that's going to give you kind of enough ability to raise a family and buy a house, and it's just not going to be there without an education. And so I said, I want to go focus on education full time. That's when I did. I, I jumped in full time. I did some stuff in 2000 and 2001 um, outside of my job, but I jumped full time education in 2002. So you were, uh, you said you're Upper Manhattan, you're doing uh, that, that, that was just, that was just, that was just an internship. Stint. Yeah, that okay. was just that was when I was going back and forth. So basically, finish Harvard, go to work at Model N up in the Silicon Valley, okay. uh, enterprise so software company. Yeah, okay. that's where I went to work with um, uh, in, in technology. Came out here 
and did that for two years and then jumped full-time in education in 2002. I left the Bay Area and came to LA to work in LA schools because that's where there's some real challenges. Was that the motivation because you felt that the biggest challenges were in LA? Or, yeah, a combination or- of I wanted to live in either... LA, New York, or, or San Francisco, and, and uh, big urban areas have the biggest school challenges. And back in when I started networking in 2001, I mean, I was a non traditional educator. I'd spent a year teaching abroad, but that was about it. And uh, um, there weren't, wasn't tons of value given to non traditional educators. And um, so it was pretty easy between New York, LA, and San Francisco to see what the opportunities were. And I was lucky enough, I met in spring of 2002. Guy named Steve Barr, who's become a good friend, where he had opened one school in Lenox, which is right outside of Los Angeles, 100%, um, almost 100% new immigrants in a really high poverty area, and uh, wonderful kids and wonderful families. And he built one school and was trying to build an organization, Green Dot Public Schools. And so he said, Hey, I, I, what's it called? Green Dot. Sorry, okay, Green that's Dot. What you Public spoke schools. about that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, said you, you guys, as really I said bad. earlier, youngest kid, I speak too fast sometimes. <laughs> so I got to always remember to slow it down. Green yeah. Dot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what happens when you got youngest of four yapping too fast. So, um, so uh, Green Dot Public Schools okay. and Green Dot. Uh, so Steve had wanted to start this organization and he built one school and, and asked me to come on and help him do that. And, and so, uh, green dot, we opened uh, charter high school. So a nonprofit organization at the time focusing just on high schools, we now do middle schools, uh, opening the highest poverty communities in Los Angeles. So, um, you know, Inglewood, South LA, East LA. And to give you a, a sense of, um, you know, what green dot does is a charter school is a public school, but it can be run by a group that's not. Uh, the school district. And so yeah. it, 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 the the idea for charters was um, give parents more options and have some more flexibility from like the, the education bureaucracy to try different things. And, um, you know, it was an incredible experience for me. I was there for four and a half years. I was the president of the organization and helped create the organization. And I just always go back to like my good friend, um, Shirley Ford, who I met in 2002. We were in Inglewood and we were looking to open our second school, the first school that we opened when I was there and, and Shirley's son, Robert was just graduating from middle school and he was set to go to Inglewood high school. And at the time, this is in 2002, Inglewood high school had a 4% proficiency rate in mathematics and just tons of violence. And, and very, 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 very few kids were graduating that school and going to college. And so Shirley was very nervous about sending Robert there. And she did not have the money to move to a better neighborhood that had uh, better public schools she did not have the money, certainly, to send her kid to private school. And so she ended up taking a chance on a brand new school that we were opening, Animo Inglewood School, Animo Inglewood um, High School, even though we had not much of a track record because she knew the alternative was going to yeah. uh, not work for Robert. And so she helped us create the school and, and we built Animo Inglewood. And Robert finished high school and went on to college. And he finished college not too long ago. And now he's teaching calculus. And, yeah. and Shirley really believes that. Um, that school changed her son's life. And, and that's where you could really see the power of public education and the possibility. And unfortunately, um, in our state and throughout this country, uh, for a lot of families like Shirley and, and Roberts and a lot of high poverty families, we've just allowed our schools to, not, to really fail our kids for a long time without taking real action on that. And a lot of what we're about at Green is let's actually give folks uh, some possibilities. Let's let's invest a ton in supporting our principals and our teachers. Let's get parents more involved and and let's make sure every child knows we believe in them and that we're going to help them get educated. And, and I helped create 10 schools at Green Dot and, and eight of 10, all high poverty neighborhoods and eight of the 10 
recognized by U.S. News and World Report amongst the better high schools wow. in the country. How do they pick? How do you pick the, the kids? That, so in this case, going? what you do is you, we would reach out. We'd go to we'd go door to door. We'd go to um, local churches. We'd go to local um, boys and girls clubs, and, and you want to make sure people know the school exists. And then parents say that we want to go to that school, and you have to do a lottery. So all of our schools always had more parents asking to come than not because the alternatives were really challenging. They're free. They're public schools. So they're just different than their local school. And then the lottery day was always both one of the most exciting and saddest days all in one, because um, you would literally have to go publicly and, and, and pull names out of a, you know, out of a bin. And um, when you pull the kid's name, there was just pure joy. And, and um, I mentioned Animo Inglewood, Animo Inglewood, which is just a really, really good high school now the difference of getting to that high school versus a local high school is, is probably the difference of college or not and, and yeah. career or not. And so you'd see great joy, but what was always sad is you had to pull all, you had to always pull all the names, even though there's 140 slots, you'd have 350 people. You're still pulling name at 333. And sometimes some parents would stick around and just, you could just, it was just so sad. You have a parent yeah. who didn't get in. So that, and that's, that's part of what motivated me to leave charter schools and focus on district public schools because like we just can't have some good schools for some kids. We got to have good yeah. schools for all kids. So how has that changed your MO in terms of, are, are you looking more at the, the overall infrastructure of education now that that's your vantage point now? Yeah, Is so it like, okay, how do we change the entire system so that this, this doesn't exist that you even have a school? That that, that's, that's what we have to, that's, you know what, currently right now I'm running for state superintendent of schools for California. And, and eventually I got to this position because I felt we have to change the underlying system. The, the current status quo system doesn't work. The current bureaucracy doesn't work. I left Green Dot at the end of 2006 and went to work in district public schools. So Green Dot schools were charter schools. And then I went to work in a unique relation, a unique collaboration between the former mayor of LA and the school district that was just focused on improving the lowest performing district schools. So at Green Dot, we created new schools. Here, we went into the existing district public schools and focused on turning those around. How do you do that? What, what, like This, this is yeah. where I was so impressed with you that night was uh, y- you, you, know, y- you come off as just like, oh, this is a familiar guy. This feels like a guy that I know, right? But you have this ability. You're dealing with something that in, in many cases, it sounds like it's so dire, and yet you at least on the outside, appear to me that you just don't get discouraged by the the most extremely dire situations and you somehow find a way to turn it around. How do you go about, what what is your attitude? What is your outlook on this? When you go start a school that's just in terrible shape, where do you begin? Yeah, so so we'll talk first with, with kind of the foundation in terms of your point on like the resilience and then, and then how do you start the actual work? Um, as I mentioned earlier, I, I really do believe that, you know, you know, for, I'm not a big like uh, quote person, but like to those that much is given, much is expected. And, and I really believe like, I am so grateful for the life I have had. I didn't really realize until I got to Zimbabwe and even much more so when I started working in Inglewood and South and Inglewood, i uh, sorry, South LA and East LA, just how far ahead of the kind of race and life I was and how privileged I was in my life growing up. I just, I didn't, I didn't understand until I still really actually understood how other people's lives were both in some of the high, high really high poverty communities internationally, as well as here. Um, and, and so my kind of personal drive to help other people experience 
a lot of the joy that I had just only increased. And my recognition that I, you know, I, I didn't, all the success wasn't from me. I'm, I, I really was very privileged, right? Like a bunch of siblings and two parents and, and, and good schools and, and real opportunity. And, and most folks don't have that. And so that for me is the motivation. It just doesn't like we, ha- like everyone yeah. should have that. Like, wh- why did I get that? And other people don't. And if I got that, man, I sure as heck better be focusing my time on helping other people uh, improve their lives. And so that, that's, an, that's just an underlying. And then I always keep perspective. And this is what I've gained working in schools. You know, you, everyone has tough days at work. And actually, I ran for this position in 2014. I lost the election. And it was really close. And that's another story for another conversation. Well, no, probably, we but, might get into that because um, I but, have some questions about. You know, but, but everyone's like, oh, you know, it must be really tough. You know, you lose the election. And, and, and when you're in politics, people, it's weird. Politics, people can lie about you. Like people lie about me all the time and say really mean, like really nasty things. What do they things. say about you? That's what I was thinking on the way over. What what do your detractors say? You don't have to say yeah. if it gives well, them ammunition. Yeah, but I, I'm very curious. <laughs> I mean, you seem like they're they're... they're you're so genuine. Yeah. I, I'm just wondering what. Well, like it, were- there was million dollars in the la- like the last election. I'd worked in education for 12 years, only in Watts and East LA and, and, and South LA and Inglewood, and I was I was the Wall Street banker millionaire who wanted to privatize public schools. Right. My right. like first of all, my wife cracked up at the, the millionaire part. She's like, yeah. that, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I was I was investment when I was 22 and 23. You don't make the money to yeah, no. uh, to get there. And, and and then there's even some tougher stuff where people dig into. You know, I've only worked in high poverty communities. I've only worked in communities of color. And, and yet, you know, people will kind of fire really aggressively on, oh, you know, Marshall's abandoned these types of kids or, or doesn't doesn't support a certain type of kid. And I'm like, I've only worked with kids of the greatest need. So it does, like, there's no evidence to back it up. But, right. but unfortunately, I learned. But, so but a quick blur. I tried to sells. I actually tried to sue in 14. I was naive. I wasn't a politician. So I realized you could kind of say whatever you want to say without it being libel, like, unless it's clear libel. So like, even though I'd only worked in education, I'd been in finance for a while. I was this millionaire. Even I've only worked in high poverty communities. It was like, it was Marshall, a guy who's just doing it for high income kids. And these things were just, right. just totally false. Um, but that's exactly why I wanted to sit yeah. down with you. And I mean, I wish I had, you know, millions of listeners so they could yeah. hear, just, just hear what you're saying. It's, you know, it's a, it's a shame. I mean, it, it just so it's, it's frustrating, but, but getting but, back but you to, can't, again, but, you but, can't focus so, on that. So bringing okay. back to perspective, when people say, oh man, you've got millions of dollars saying you're a bad person or, or, you know, you lose an election. I, I just remind people, my tough day is I'm healthy. I can call 30 people and they'll tell me they love me and laugh at my jokes. Uh, I got a wonderful family and I'm highly employable. Like that's my toughest day. And you think about the kids that I've worked with, and I've known for a long time, when you're 14 years old and you're sitting in an algebra class and you are not taught long division or fractions in elementary school and you have no idea what's going on in that class because you weren't given that opportunity, you weren't taught well, and you know that most other, or a lot of other 14-year-olds were given better schools, and you know that in the 21st century, there's not much future for folks who actually can't think critically, like that's a tough day. Like yeah. that's a real tough day. And then when you add that, when you know that school is not delivering for you and you know other kids have better schools and you know that your opportunities are less and you know that at 14 or 13, that's a real tough day, right? Like my day is nothing compared to that. And so that that's where, um, to your original question of like pushing through, it's easy for me to be resilient. Yeah. And, and frankly, if I'm not, then who the hell is going to be? You know, who, who the heck else is going to be? And And what our kids have gone through, like, on my team right now, Miriam Hernandez, um, 
who, who works for us on our campaign. I met her when she was in high school. She went to one of our schools. So I mentioned the partnership schools, which are the, when I, when we worked in district public schools, it was called the partnership for Los Angeles schools, 15,000 kids, 18 schools, all were the lowest 5% schools in LA. And, and to give you a sense of like, what does lowest 5% mean? One of our high schools had 3,500 kids in it and 35 were at grade level in mathematics. Like that's, that's happening eight miles, not anymore because we've, we've improved the school, but eight miles from where we are right now, unacceptable. So, so real tough, tough schools. So Miriam, who I met when she was uh, in high school, came to this country when she was six years old. Uh, her and her family came over from Mexico. She had, they literally had almost nothing, tons of love in that family, which is always, that means that's everything, but, but n- nothing else. She went to a, really, really, really notoriously bad elementary school, a really, really bad middle school. Luckily, she was able to get into, not kind of, she went to a magnet school at Roosevelt and it was a partnership school. And she ended up um, being really successful in high school and, and, and graduated and went to Long Beach State. And at Long Beach State, she was the student body vice president. She created the first food bank at Long Beach State for kids because she realized that all the kids like her who didn't have any money, uh, there was no food for them for snacks, you know, beyond because financial aid just paid for meals. And so she you know, helped create a food bank and she launched the first resource center for DACA kids. And, and she's just this inspiration. And she just graduated from Long Beach uh, a little over a year ago. And she, she joined our campaign team because, you know, she wants to help other kids like her. But I think about what she's overcome. Yeah. And then frankly, I think about my wife, like my wife and I talk about this all the time about how much harder her journey was than mine. Um, like that gives me more fuel to when I have a tough day to get up. And then the good news for me, in the back of my mind, I always have my mom. My mom was a, like, life's tough. Get up, yeah. get going. I mean, like, she was a big, my mom was a woman of not, not a huge talker, but an incredible woman. And, and so like I had the experiences of Miriam and I know my wife obviously over and over. And then I've got my mom like, Hey, sometimes life's tough. Suck it up, get up, get going. You got to do it. Yeah. You know? And, and so that, that makes the, um, the tough days easier. It motivates me to, to push through. I'm a human being. I have a lot of insecurity. I got a lot of like this, this week I've been waking up at 5am and not cause I want to wake up 5am cause I'm stressed and I'm exhausted and you're insecure and you know, your profession and, and, and acting really does also, I think really prey on insecurity, just like politics. Cause you get, you get nose all the time and right. you know, politics, you go to one meeting, like I'm behind you go to two others, like, Hey, no, you know, and then you go to another one, like you're a jerk. And, yeah. and so, <laughs> um, so, so, you're human. So that stuff still hurts. There's no question about it. I tell folks like, I'm not like some guy who's not scared. I get scared and insecure all the time. I just, I, I push through it. Push I'm, motiv- through it yeah. I'm motivated by, um, and inspired by young people and families that, that frankly need us to push through it. They need us to do more for them because it, our, our society has both been very unequal for a long time. Uh, and we have so much talent that we have not allowed to flourish because we have not given people quality public schools and, and, um, they need us to push. Let me ask you, what did you, you know, your, your takeaway from Harvard, you go to, you know, the, the, I would imagine, you know, if not the best, one of the best business schools in the world, um, you learn about entrepreneurship infrastructure. How does that inform the way you go into these schools in terms of like, is there something that you look at that you say, okay, this is going to be the tipping point. If I, if I fix this thing, the other things will fall like dominoes. Is there something like that? Yeah. So as as you can imagine, uh, it's a good point. Bring back to your original question, like original question, when we start with the schools, where do we start? Um, We made a lot of mistakes early. Uh, What I did learn 
um, at business school. Also learned a lot from, as I mentioned, my experience in technology was, was really good. I think the best thing I learned was give people a lot of room to to do their jobs. You know, too often education, um, we don't give teachers and principals the room and the space to do their jobs, you know, and the support they need to do their jobs. And so really getting the right people into these schools and then really supporting them was something I learned uh, right away. And and it was tough. When we when I went, was working in, in the L.A. schools for the turnaround work, especially in that first year, we were in the midst of a budget crisis. So there was there was just less money. Uh, there was far less money than, than normal. And, and that's California doesn't pay much for schools as it is. And um, there was so much need. And I think a mistake we made, Matt, early on, uh, which is certainly not the book didn't say it at Harvard, but life, you don't always follow what you're taught. Like we tried to solve too many problems in that first year. We actually, we had some real challenges because there was so much need everywhere. We wanted to help the teachers and help the principals and get the parents involved and actually bring more technology and actually get the community involved and actually bring health services. You can't do it all. You can't do it all. And you wake up and you realize that, you know, even though we had people with it working around the clock, working nonstop, really talented people, it was, you know, kind of exhausting for our, our principals and our counselors and our teachers and, and, um, and, you know, we went really broad, but not deep. So the good news is we kind of got our, you know, we, we learned very fast. I think that's the other key. Oh, got to be reflective and get feedback and learn as fast as possible. Like that's, I think is one of the things that is essential for any organization. And so we said, okay, let's take a step back. Now, when I start, you know, round two, second year partnership, and certainly the way I do the work today is first and foremost, school leadership. You, you have to, if you do not get that piece of the equation right, then um, the other stuff will never be as good as it could be. And so what we did in the partnership schools is we ended up paying principals more to come work in Watts and East LA and South LA. Like the, the incentive systems are broken in education in the sense that the highest need kids uh, typically have less experienced teachers and principals and higher turnover of teachers and principals because it's, it's a harder job. Because pe- uh- Teachers and principals are scared to go to those. Not uh, to say just, I mean, I mean well, scared to go to a place where the the results are not going to be. And it's a lot harder job. That's I mean, what I'm saying. Yeah, I like, mean, like, you're, you're going to go there, and it's going to. You're there. Are they worried that their performance is going to look ab- like it, their performance is a problem? Yeah, generally, and, it's generally it's longer yeah. hours. Yeah, it's more emotionally stressful because you have in our high poverty communities. There's tons of issues outside of a school. There's a lot of violence sometimes in some of these communities. There are issues where healthcare is not actually as prevalent as it should be because we haven't gotten that right as a state and as a country. And so you have a lot more challenges that you're actually addressing. And the children bring all those challenges. If a kid is hungry, if a kid doesn't get yeah. healthcare, if a kid actually has lots of violence in their neighborhood and they have trauma, they bring all that to a school. And so it's, it's a harder job, more hours. It's more emotionally draining. And oftentimes it's a longer commute. And yet you don't pay anybody any extra. And, and oftentimes, you know, you get less support. So, yeah. so you think about then why do it, right? So right. what we did is let, we said, okay, let's flip that equation. Let's get, let's pay principals more. So like you could make 30 grand more to be a principal, you know, at Jordan High School in Watts or Roosevelt in East LA than other LA Unified How schools. did you do that? We, ra- you we get- raised philanthropic dollars. So oh, we, okay. you, you, LA, California is really low on funding. One of the biggest problems that not many people know about is that our public schools are way underfunded. We're, we're, we're the wealthiest state in the nation, and yet we're 41st out of 50 states in terms of how much we spend per child for education. It's unacceptable. It's a, it's, it's a huge problem. How did that come to be? What, I mean, maybe that's too big of a can of worms for well, us to open. Well, I think it's right worth now, a spend. But- I'll, I'll finish the, the last thought, and I think it's worth spending a minute or two on because I, I think it matters a lot in terms of 
our state has has not prioritized public schools. So I'd love to come back and talk about that about that a little bit further. Um, so just to finish on, on the, the principles, you know, we 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 raised we, we when we we said we got we did a lot of marketing, right? So we had the, we had the mayor, we had the school district. We said, hey, let's let's have the city of LA come together and really improve our lowest performing schools. And we were able to raise a lot of money. A couple, Melanie and Richard Lundquist, who really helped us create the partnership for LA schools. They were anchor supporters. They committed fifty million dollars over ten years. Wow. Uh, and then we had another couple less in Cherry Biller that put a lot of money in the, the Wasserman Foundation, uh, Fox Sports West, Wells Fargo. So we had a number of both individuals and companies that came in. And, and, and what's great is like folks like Melanie and Richard, they they didn't just give money. Like they were actively a part of the organization. And so we, so with the additional resources. And is their motivation similar to yours? They're just philanthropic. Yeah, yeah, good people. I mean, these are yeah. these are public schools. They, 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 they both went to public schools. In, in Los Angeles, when our schools were better, and, yeah. and they they and they want to help people, you know, and so um, we we paid principals more to at least get enough people to apply for these schools. And, and you mentioned like, where do you start? Always start with school leadership, and then we gave our principals a lot more support than they typically would get. So if if you can pay people enough where it's competitive and they have better work conditions and better support, it's an awesome job. And then if you have that right, then all of a sudden your teachers, because your principal is the main person that's both hiring teachers and supporting teachers. So then, then the teachers are more excited to stay there. We also found our lead teachers and, and, and teachers that were really strong and respected by their peers. And for many of them, gave them additional money to coach and mentor their peers. And so what you find, educators love learning. They're great learners. They love learning from each other. And oftentimes school systems don't invest enough in, in teacher learning. And, and we said, let's not have some bureaucrat come and give a, you know, a training session, you know, for one hour and then leave. Let's actually get teachers that are in the, in the classrooms that are respected by the peers to help train each other. So we did that. And then the third thing we focused on was our parent engagement and, and we uh, launched a parent college. So on Saturdays from 9am to 1pm, once a month, our parents came to school and we literally went out in Watts in East LA, knocked on doors, invited our families to get back involved in their schools. What I've found in my career is um, you know, most of the families in our schools, a lot of new immigrants to this country, a lot of multi-generational poverty, a lot of single family households, a lot of foster parents. Everyone loves their kids. Um, it's just that they may not know that parent involvement is expected if it's kind of new to this country. Or if, if you're multi-generational poverty in the same neighborhood, you may have had a very bad experience with that school. So the likelihood when you were there, so the likelihood that you're going to just want to come right back uh, is pretty low. And so we, we invested a million dollars a year in getting our parents more involved, brought them back to school. And then on Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m., we teach them how to get more involved in their kids' education and also what their rights were in education. And so this small example, but, you know, we'd have uh, a parent conference night. A lot of our families had never been to a parent conference night. And so we'd say, hey, here's what a parent conference night is. And yeah. here's what the questions you should ask. And here's what good answers are. And here's what bad answers are. And if you don't get those good answers, here's who to go to. Or, yeah. hey, regardless of what language you speak or what your education level is, when your daughter or son comes home, say, hey, what book you're reading and who's the main character and what do you love about the book? You know, right. and so those kind of things. And, and we had 7,000 parents go through our parent college over the last, you know, nine years. So, so you know, really, really excited about that. And so, we, we you know, we started with principals, teacher leaders, parents. And then as we got that, then we said, okay, now let's move into more technology. Now let's move into what's called restorative justice, which is like, how do you create communities at schools that are more about identify, like not about suspensions, but about how do you identify root issues of why kids are misbehaving and actually support them in that. And then we went into more community partnerships. And so we, we, we got smarter about, you have to do all of it over time, Yeah. but let's, you have to start with, you got to start and go deeper. Yeah. And, and, and when you got, if you got to start, it's, it's school leadership, teacher leadership and, and, and parents. Yeah. 
you know, and then and then ultimately kind of back to your broader, you know, point on, on dollars. I, I was at the partnership for six and a half years, um, still on the board today. Love the organization. Our graduation rates were thirty six percent when we started in two thousand and eight, and now eighty one percent. In growing. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, just I mean, our kids, our kids 2008 shine. 2008 to, to, to 2017. Yeah, today, is, 81% and, wow. and growing. And we had the highest improvement on state exams of any school system in our first five years. Suspension rates were 24% when we started. 24% of the kids getting suspended, right? Unacceptable. Um, Crazy. It it's three, less than 3%. So it's like real good success. Um, but I left the partnership, uh, a job I love, just similar to Green Dot. I love Green Dot, um, but felt that, hey, most kids were in district schools, so I could have more of an impact there. And then I loved the partnership. And then, but I felt, hey, we have so many educators working so hard, so many teachers and principals and counselors and school site staff members. But if we don't fix the politics of education, we'll never educate all kids. Because as we mentioned earlier, our state doesn't fund our schools enough. And that's a political decision that comes out of Sacramento. What our kids are actually learning, political decisions that come out of Sacramento. And what's you know, in our schools, what's a real challenge is the world has changed so much of the last 40, 50 years, but a lot of schools haven't changed much at all. Yeah. And, and it doesn't make any sense. And it's like schools shouldn't be places where kids are sitting in desks being talked to for six to eight hours, right? They should be working on projects and engaging on things and getting outside the classroom walls. So, but, but what kids are taught comes from Sacramento. How much time kids are in school comes from Sacramento. So like all these things are political decisions. And I realized that we'll, we'll never educate all kids in the state of California until we get the politics of education, right? And, and you know, back to the conversation we had a couple minutes ago where, you know, our state doesn't fund our public schools the way we should. And and even though we have, when, it, when adjusted for cost of living, we have the highest poverty rates in our public schools of any state in the country, which by definition requires more money. And yet we're amongst the lower funded states. And, and part of the problem is that um, we just, our politicians and, and frankly, the public that elects them has not prioritized public education as, as a top issue for our state. So what's happening in, I remember that night, you, you know, this is months ago, but this is how good you were. I remember a lot of the things you said. Right? And I told I you, I'm a political dunce, so you actually did something right. Um, I remember you saying that that Massachusetts was either number one yeah, or one of absolutely. the leaders. What are they doing differently and how can we learn from them? So it's, it's, it's the right question. And especially like, how can we learn too often in, in public schools, everything's very siloed. Like we should be learning so much from other schools and other states and other countries. And yet we, and if you look in, you know, we're here in LA and LA has got a kind of a a growing technology sector. You go to the Bay area where I grew up, there's huge tech sector. That's all about like innovation and creativity and learning and public schools should be the anchor of learning fast, but, but we don't, we don't copy well enough or learn fast enough, but, but we're going to do much more of that um, going forward. And that's something that has been a part of my career. And I say, let's learn from the best state in the country, which is Massachusetts. So what happened in Massachusetts? In the late 80s and early 90s, you actually saw the civic community, business leaders, other city leaders say, hey, we've got to, do, we've got to have better public schools. They weren't as bad as ours were in California. I mean, just to pause to make sure people realize California, I'm a California, I think it's the greatest state um, out there. We rank 48th in fourth grade reading in the country, state Oof. of California, right? So like, when I say like, like our schools wow. have challenges, and we, we have... We have 6.2 million kids in our public schools, as we're talking right now in public school right now, and over half of those kids, over 3 million, can't read and write at grade level. I mean, it is a crisis. Um, so, so Massachusetts wasn't as low as we were, but they were, they were not where they are. And, and they said, Let's, we got to actually do something differently. And then you, what you saw in that state was the business community, labor came on board, the governor, 
the legislature, the really the the, the overall kind of civic fabric came together and said, we're going to move forward in a big way for our kids. And they passed, I think it was 1993, the Massachusetts Education Reform Act, I think was the act. So there was a definitive moment, definitive, a definitive mo- year. It, it, exactly. They- so they built, so there was a years leading up to this where you had different, you know, you had civic leaders, business leaders, education leaders, all saying we have to do something different. Then you had the political leadership and they all came together and passed this comprehensive act that did a couple of things. It said, more money for our schools. They laid out a pathway. I think it was over eight to 10 years to keep increasing the funding per kid. So now they're amongst the top in the country where they were not at the time. More money for our schools, more rigor for our kids. So they said, we're going to actually make sure that classrooms are teaching kids skills that they need to have for the future and not for the past. And they were actually having kind of high quality curriculum for all of our kids. Real accountability. So saying, hey, you, you actually, you know, schools can't just do the same thing over and over again if kids aren't being successful. It's put in place an accountability system. Deeper investment in teachers and principals. Any school improvement effort has to start with investing in teachers and principals because that's just the anchor of, of a school. Um, and then they also kind of had some more creativity on their school models where they were pretty early on. They, they have what they're called their Boston pilot schools in, in the city of Boston where kind of giving certain schools a little more flexibility to be innovative and try some different things. And then the, and then the key thing is so that was like their framework. Tons of different things since then, and there's a fair amount written about it. But the key thing is they stuck with it. So they, they didn't just pass that bill and move on. Like they, that kind of alignment of governor and legislature and business and labor, like didn't always agree on everything, but said, hey, we're going to stick with public education, top priority for the state. And, and even though change is hard and, and change is very hard. And, and I, we talk a lot about, you know, a lot of the successes I've had in schools, but I've also, you make a lot of mistakes and also just people, change is tough. Yeah. But, um, but in the midst of that, and especially when you have politics involved, which, which schools do, you know, change can be fought hard against, but they stuck with it and, and that state stuck with it. And so they're, they still have work to do, but they, they've been leading the way. And so you saw there is a roadmap there. And with- how did they, what, you know, what, who, if there was a leader that did this or how did, how could we learn from that? And, and how do you propose that we could do that here in California? Well, I is- think, yeah, what's nice is that, you know, what we should learn is you have to have strong alignment of political leadership. And so that means we have to have the governor and the state superintendent of public instruction and our legislature put this as a top priority. And then you need to see, I think, both the business community and labor community step up and mayors, you know, and say, hey, this is we're going to make this the top. And so it requires you're not going to get all those people on day one, but. You know, we need a governor who's going to prioritize public education. Uh, we need a state superintendent who's actually done the work in education. That, you know, I'm state superintendent in, in our in our state for the last couple of decades hasn't the person who's in the job hasn't been in schools for if at all for a very very long time. And, and so we need someone who actually is going to really be an advocate for kids first yeah, and foremost. Boots on and, the ground, kind yeah, of, has done the work yeah. and, and is is not going to you know cave to special interests and, and understands the changes that are necessary. Um, so, so we, we need to have governor and state soup and legislature and, and, and the broader public commit to do this. And, and I remind people, the state of California, we have committed to other policy issues. Like we've, we've, we've taken on big challenges before successfully. So if you look at the environment, you know, not too long ago, this state said, we're going to lead the way on climate change and, you know, didn't didn't have all the regulations that are now in place passed, didn't have the additional dollars for incentives for electric cars. That stuff wasn't passed. We just said we're going to do it, had the political leadership and committed to get it done. And now we're leading the way on emission standards and renewables. You know, you look at healthcare, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, Care Act was passed in 2008, California said, we're going to lead the way on getting insurance to the uninsured. And I'm thrilled that we did. You know, I think think healthcare is similar to education. Like you have to have healthcare. Um, 
but covered California didn't exist. You know, the kind of the additional dollars to fund this didn't exist. We, we chose to do it and found a way. It's time for our state to, to commit to find a way to have the best public schools yeah. in, in the country. And one of the challenges is that, you know, one, most voters don't have kids in public schools. So it doesn't always get prioritized politically. Right. Two, we're at the point now in our state where the majority of kids in public schools are high poverty children uh, that don't always necessarily have huge political influence. You know, we're at the point in our state where, you know, the majority of kids in our public schools are kids of color, you know, which also don't historically have huge political influence. And so that, that I think one of the reasons that we don't prioritize public education is that, that the political will, you know, most people don't have kids in public schools and um, those that have real influence in politics, typically either one wealthier individuals or two special interest groups, you know, we've got a student population that that's, it's mostly high poverty. And so that that's like, that's got to shift that equation. That's why all of us, me, you, everybody, um, whether we have kids in public schools or not, you know, whether, our, even if our kids are in a good public school, like we have to step up and get serious about ensuring that all kids, you know, a lot of kids don't have a voice politically. I mean, Sacramento, yeah. you have special interests, have voices all over the place. Where's the voice for kids? Yeah. And that, that's what, that's what you need real leaders to commit to support other kids. And, and, and I, I say also, even for, you know, I've only worked in high poverty communities, but even for our higher income communities, our public schools aren't where they need to be. You know, I mean, the, the as I mentioned earlier, the world has just changed so much. And yet, if you took a time machine back, you know, 80 years ago, the only thing that would be familiar would be a classroom. It wouldn't look that much different from yeah. classrooms today, even though everything else has, has changed. changed. And, yeah. and so it's time for us to bring real change to our schools and a lot more innovation into our schools. It's time for us to truly commit to supporting our teachers and principals teaching is such an awesome job and yet we're in a situation where if you have two teachers in their 30s that are te- that are working every day they're not getting paid enough money to buy a house in most cities right like what profession if you're not getting if you're not if, if, if two spouses are working and they, they're not making enough money to to buy a house in most cities who's going in that profession like, right. I, I mean luckily thank god still a lot of people are but not enough we have a 10,000 person teacher shortage in the state of California we have huge teacher shortages across the country yeah. you know, like so we got to get serious about how do you truly invest in teachers and principals and, and how do we truly commit to serving all kids and i think everybody has to realize that they're they're all our kids you know i have one son he's he's six and a half he's in our local public school but like i don't have a responsibility just to him yeah i have a responsibility to all of our kids in this state and, and we all have to do our part yeah uh, well said. Um, what what can we do? By the way, anybody listening, um, I have no affiliation <laughs> with Marshall other than having seen him at a fundraiser and really liked what he had to say. And I'm liking what he has to say right now. Um, so, you know, they just I, I guess I throw that out there so that there's I, I'm wondering, like, what could. Yeah. So what, we're, what, we're, we're talking what, education I, because I'm. No, you know, no, running no. for a position. I mentioned it once in a while, but yeah, this is no, this no, is no. But I'm, talk, no, but I'm actually, talk, yeah. I'm actually asking you yeah. because it, I'm just going like, well, what, what, where can you be seen, heard, mailing list, any yeah. of that kind of stuff, or, or what could someone do to kind of help your cause if they're listening to this and they're going, hey, this, this sounds like a guy who's got his heart in the right place. I'd love to help that cause, help that movement. What can someone do? What action can they take? Yeah, I appreciate it. So, so two, you know, a couple of thoughts first for, for our cause immediately, which is, um, you know, I'm working to, to be the state superintendent of public instruction for California, which is the top education official in the state. Uh, MarshallTuck.com 
is our website and there's two L's in Marshall and, and you can jump on board and sign up and we have a comprehensive plan out there so you can hear you can read all the details about what we believe in and what we think needs to change and, and more background on some of the places I've worked in the past um, and then that's a great way to get in touch with us and and share your ideas and be a part of it and then you know secondly outside of politics I just really encourage everybody um, you know one is we do need people to participate and vote uh, and I don't mean that just broadly in our state your school board member, your state assembly member, state senator, and state superintendent, those four positions plus the governor are literally the positions that decide how much we're going to spend on public schools. What are our kids going to learn? And yet most Californians can't name the people in those okay, positions. So, okay, right? here's where you and can that's help a big me. problem. Here's where you can help me. Yeah. Where do you think is the best place to get the right information on on who these people are and what they represent. What in 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 your opinion? Because it's a little bit like uh, yeah, it, it's a little yeah. bit like nutrition. You know, <laughs> there are the, the paleo people. There are the, the especially the these days, right? Everyone, everyone, yeah. It's like, what, who do you? How do you know who to trust? How do you know that this person sent? You know, like you yeah. said, they're, they're couching you as a, the Wall Street. Yeah, I'm not the bad guy. Yeah. So so you know, to the to the you know average Joe citizen, they're going. I I don't know. And then they go to in the ballot booth and you're looking down, you're going, okay, uh, yeah, Marshall Tuck. Sounds like yeah. a Marshall Tucker band. I like them. Boom. You know, it's, it, how does, how do people get more information? How do they inform themselves? I mean, reading the paper. Yeah, the no, news, it's a good but- question. I, and I, I, I should, I wish I had a, a one size fit all answer. You know, I wish yeah. to your point, there was like, what, what's that highly, you know, what's that highly trusted website or, or source that you just believe everything they can do. So you can simplify it. Unfortunately, um, there's so many sources of information these days, it's hard. And so I, I think that I always tell folks like step one is um, understanding what the positions are. I mean, I know that sounds obvious, but like you go to the Secretary of State's website to at least know, okay, Assembly, Senate, who's my local member? And then you look up your local school board member um, through, the, through the school site. And then I think for elections, I don't know. It's, it's really tough. I mean, there's not one great source. I do think that, you know, credible newspaper endorsements still have some real value, even though no one really reads the paper because you at least have journalists that are looking at people's backgrounds and, yeah. and they're not, it's not someone's paid ad or yeah. someone's kind of quote unquote earned media that it's a paid ad. Like you actually have legitimate people digging in. I, I think that, that actually going to the candidates' websites and reading what they write, it sounds obvious and simple. But few people do it. And the number of candidates, like we have we have a comprehensive plan out there about how we plan to improve our public schools. And in our race, at least, most people are running against, they want to go and be the head education official and they don't have a plan. There'll yeah. be a couple paragraphs of high-level statements. So I, so I think the newspapers are good. I think that actually going to source data, candidates, websites, and if, if it all feels high-level and very kind of political speak, then it probably is. You know, it's probably not not yeah. much different. And then- you know, trusted sources that you may have, you know, organizations you're part of, or, or also oftentimes, you know, friends, like we do a lot of work uh, events where you and I met, you know, where, where people can come in here and then you, then people get excited and then they, they share with their friends. And, um, you know, there's so much stuff on the ballot these days and there's also just so much noise out there. It just, it's hard to break it. And so I, 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 I go to papers, I read websites, I actually, um, Look at look, talk to friends who maybe know more about these issues than I do, and ask them who they who they like a lot. And and, and I know it's a long winded answer and not a good one, but I don't have the perfect. No, no, no. That's for, the, you know. that's actually. Uh, but I think that's you. You got to put some time in. I guess what I will say with focus, and I think is the right answer is. 
although we have a lot of elections, ultimately, even if your even if your neighbor has a special election, it's 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 not more than once a year, and it's usually once every two years. And I think everybody should just say, you know what, I'm going to put five hours into actually preparing for who I'm going to vote for. Like, and like, forget, like, if everyone just, I'll even give you three hours. If everyone just said, I'm going to do three hours, I'm actually going to look up the positions. I'm going to read the statements from the candidates. I'm going to see if they have a plan. And I'm going to look at a couple sources to see who recommends them. Yeah. And the number of people who, and we're just talking about for our democracy. I mean, you know, not just education, three hours, three to five hours before every election to do some learning. If everybody just did that and actually voted, we would have people who are elected who are much, much more likely to carry out the work with integrity, with focus in the right way versus oftentimes having people get elected that are really driven by special interests. You know, like our campaign, we're only taking money from individuals, no PACs, no corporations, because yeah. we want to be about kids. But but um, so now that's is, yeah. that is that going to hurt you in the long run where you're not going to have as, as much money? Like, like, you know, just let's just circle back really yeah. quick. I know we're kind of winding down, yeah. but but to the original thing we talked about uh, with the Matt Santos character on the West Wing, where he wasn't playing the game, you know, he you mean was, the first 10 minutes where I didn't know we were on and we were just talking. <laughs> That's how I get. My, like Matt's giving me great background here. Like, we wait. We're actually this is this interview is rocking. But that's yeah, how I, I get. Like my best. Why not? I'm going to quote you all over the place. Like, <laughs> I like um, it. Let's go with it. Um, that's my belief in politics. <laughs> I say everything in the same room. I don't have off the record because it's too complex for mine to figure it out. <laughs> so, so no funny. problem if we were rolling. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, no, but just we were talking about you know being having integrity and you know sitting down with you for an hour and picking your brain and then having seen you for about an hour that night. I have a, a very good sense of you, unless I'm completely off on my judgment of people. I, I think I have a, a, a good sense. Um, I, I can uh, see what you stand for, what, what you're looking to do, what your plan is. Um, but to get that out to all the people, as you said, who are not taking five hours or three hours or even 20 minutes yep. or even going to vote, you know, how do you manage to not go to special interests and then and then still reach the people that you need to reach for you to get into office. Yeah, so the good news is as I mentioned earlier when we talk about background, I was you know raised by a very old-fashioned Irish Catholic influence, you know, my, my dad was certainly a picture but my mom was the anchor that where uh hard work was drilled into us very aggressively when I was growing up um uh, in many levels uh you know whether it be chores, punishment, once, you know, it was a little old school. So, um, so I work really hard, you know, and, and what we do is we do, you know, where you and I met was at a fundraiser. We do fundraisers all the time. You know, we, we find people who want to support our campaign and ask them to bring their friends and their networks to get involved. And um, we're working, you know, seven days a week, very aggressively to try to make sure that we can, because you have to raise money. I don't, um, you know, I met you at my good friend Brett's house and, and Brett's like one of my closest friends. And I don't love calling Brett and be like, Hey, can you give me money for my campaign? It's very unusual. It's weird. It's uncomfortable. You yeah. know, Hey, my buddy, Travis, Hey, I haven't seen Travis for a couple of years. He's a good friend from college. Don't see him very often. Hey, Travis, how you been? How are your kids? Can you give me money for my campaign? Right. Yeah. Don't love doing it. But if you don't have money, uh, because people don't take all that time to do their research, if you don't have money to, to communicate through ads, you can't get your message out. So we're, we work very, very hard. Uh, to raise money. The good news is most people want kids that better public schools. 
Democrats, Republicans, independents, big cities, rural towns, high income, low income, you know, people want kids at better public schools and better opportunity. And so, and, and, and most people want somebody to be the education leader in the state who's actually worked in schools and delivered results for our kids. And, and most people know we can do better in our public schools. The fact we're 48th in, in fourth grade reading, like most people know we can do better. So what's good is that when we get out there and people hear our message, they want to get behind this campaign. And, and, and so, yeah, we got to work a little bit harder because we're just focused on individuals and we got to push our supporters harder to do more than they usually would do um, politically. But, you know, that's not just about the campaign. I mean, if we want to, it's going to take at least a decade to go from where we are, which is amongst the lowest performing schools in the country, to where we should be, which should be the best public schools in the country. And we're all going to have to work hard and do a little bit more. And so um, this is just part of that journey. And, and yeah, there's some disadvantages on on, on not taking special interest uh, funding, but you know, I, I got one special interest and that's that's the kids, right? And, and I think there's enough people there if we get our jo- get our word out there and, and appreciate you know, you and other people take an interest in our campaign. You know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you can learn a lot more at marshalltuck.com. Um, but we need, our kids just need us to do more for them is, is the bottom line. And, and I'll tell you what's been awesome about my, I've loved my job. I mentioned before, you know, I jumped on a path, off a path. I was on a path to make a lot of money and kind of have the quote unquote success and all that. And I have not regretted that for a second. Uh, the inspiration and joy and, and, and motivation that I've received by just seeing so many wonderful students like Robert Ford, who I mentioned, like Miriam Hernandez and others just, just thrive when we actually support them. It just, it, it's wonderful. And it just gives me motivation to know that like, cause we know what makes a good school. We can give every child a quality education. It, it, it actually is a political will issue. And it's, it's like, it's on us cause we're not trying to figure out how to colonize Pluto here. We actually know, like, we know what makes a good school. Yeah. There are good schools everywhere. We just, it's time for a good school for all kids. And so, so, so that, that gets us motivated. And most people, um, I've never met a person who didn't do service or volunteer and feel good after. It's just, we don't really build it into our rhythm of like priorities in our life. But every, like anytime anyone's done that, they always feel good after, right? I've never met somebody who didn't like work with a group of people to try to do something that was good and accomplish that, whether it be getting someone elected, whether it be actually going out and serving food to the homeless, whether it be volunteering at a school site and doing a cleanup and not feel good after. And so I think a lot of what we have to do, and this is well beyond this campaign, is just get everyone to do more for other people. Right? Yeah. If, if everyone just did, let's just say everyone took a step back and said, I'm going to do 3% more of my time and 3% more of my money to help other people. Like just that, imagine how much better the world will be. And I know we're going pretty high level here towards the end, man, but you know, we're going to no, finish strong with it. it. I, I and I believe it. in it. I love it. I want, I was just going to say, this is a perfect way to end. Uh, your, you know, your message is awesome. The way you put it, the simplicity, I'm just thinking, you know, even if none of the listeners take that advice, I'm just thinking for myself, where could I step up, pay more attention to local politicians, pay more attention to, who's on the ballot, what they stand for, you know, where can I take more time myself to, to do my due diligence so that, you know, in, for whatever position it is that I'm picking someone with a more educated guest than I was in the past. So that's what I would say to everybody listening. Um, personally, I, I hope to see you there. 
Um, I, I really love what you're saying and, and you're just uh, a, a really genuine person. I'm, I'm really honored to have you here. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it too. And, and what's nice is, um, as I mentioned right now, my, you know, my job is interviewing f- to get this position, but we're going to work together for a long time about how do we improve these schools, you know, me and you and hopefully a lot of the listeners here because there's, whether it be just you know, volunteering at the school in your neighborhood, whether it be actually supporting like a local school district foundation, whether it be, you know, going down and mentoring kids, maybe in a community that's not your own community, but where kids need more mentors, whether it be if you're running a company, creating a couple internships for kids coming out of, you know, more challenging circumstances or all kids, you know, that are high school students that come and work in, in, in your company. Like there's just so much more we can do collectively for our public schools and for our young people. And so I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation and hopefully we'll have many more over the years and, and, and get more and more people engaged on improving our schools and, and giving kids what they deserve, which is a chance at a phenomenal future. It's awesome, man. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for, for doing this. this and, fun. Uh, thanks for Appreciate doing Appreciate it. Do. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.